before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 17. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got the Tom Brady of Macro, Rich Diaz with Acorn Macro Consulting, and we've got uh, Keith Dicker, everyone's favorite boomer in his dad's sweater today, with Ice Cap Asset Management. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Um, as always, a little preface here before we jump into the show. All we ask as we pump out this content free of charge is that you... Uh, send this podcast to at least one person. Uh, we are trying to continue to build the community here. And as we're going to get into it, I think this community and this awareness of this podcast uh, is exactly what Canada needs. So uh, appreciate your support on that. Because I think we should, you know, being a Canadian podcast, I think we naturally have to discuss our unacceptable views which is the what's happening in Ottawa right now, because this is getting notoriety uh, all across the world. What's happening in the, you know, Ottawa with the truckers and, and this whole movement, because I really want to touch on the, the bigger theme of this, not like your political leanings. I don't really care left or if you're left, you're right, you're liberal, you're conservative. I think what's important to take away here is what this movement is, is kind of, showing and, and what it's alluding to, because I think this kind of comes down to the, the bigger picture, which is we have a societal rift today. We have a widening, very widening wealth inequality, which has been exacerbated over the past 24 months to successive monetary manipulation. And I think that, yeah, society in Canada is fractured and, and around the world. And I think that this is this is really what this sort of movement is all about. Yeah, you can throw in vaccine mandates and all that. But I think that there's just a cohort of society that um, is upset. And this kind of goes back to, you know, Neil Howe's great book, The Fourth Turning, which really talks about, again, societies, you go back through history, societies go through these patterns um where basically you kind of have the spring market and things are good and then as things you know as you society starts to go through these these changes you get what's called the fourth turning which is basically um we we tear down our existing institutions people lose faith in the in the the authority and in the institutions and we end up going through a lot of sort of turmoil and volatility so uh i mean rich i don't know if you want to comment first but I mean, how, how are you looking at this from, from the bigger, large macro picture? Um, I think it's, I, frankly, I think it's, I'm surprised it sort of happened, hasn't happened earlier. Um, and I'm actually kind of happy it finally did. If I had a truck and I didn't have to write research every week, I'd probably be out there with them. Sorry to, to say, but I think it's also, yeah, an acceptable view. I think it's also important to realize that, um, it's something we touched on. I think it's a function of 
the hubris that I think a lot of the leaders, both from an economic and financial market standpoint and um, a health policy standpoint are exhibiting. The hubris, um, there's a certain arrogance um, in, the, in the face of sort of overwhelming evidence that their decisions have either have caused not irreparable harm, but significant harm, deep scarring, whether it's economic scarring or political scarring. Um, the idea that they, I just have yet to hear a politician that's been in charge say, you know what, we screwed up. Here's how we screwed up. Here's how we're going to get better. Um, and I and I just think you know in in most walks of life I think you're you either you have to apologize, admit that you some wrongdoing, admit some culpability, and then adjust and change direction and pivot. And I think the earlier and more sincere you are in that apology or um, sort of admission that what you've done is either not appropriate or has seen over time in hindsight to be seen to the the better the wrong decision. I think the faster and more honest you do that, the more, pe more people forgive you. And we've seen the exact opposite. Um, and so I'll, I'll pass it over to Keith, but I think that that's, and I think that the convoys, it speaks to that. We know a lot more about this virus. We know now than we did two years ago. We know a lot more about the reaction to this virus, whether it's fiscal or monetary policy. And we know the negative externalities that the decisions as a function of those those decisions that we know that there's been really, really some some bad, um, some, some horrible results really as a function of that. And yet the pushing on this view that there's only one way to do it and it's their way or the highway. And anyone who disagrees is, dare I say it, a racist or whatever, I think is, or, or anti-science, I think is, I think is a horrific um, way to run a central bank, run a government, and I agree with you, Steve. I think that they are, they are related. Uh, Keith, if you have a... Yeah, I, th I think this is one of the... It's, it's a real interesting moment in time. Um, so I, I like to talk about how we're, we're the world right now over the last 10 years, and it increases... It's, it's escalating every year. That we're seeing this collision across, say, uh, like monetary, fiscal economic, social, and political factors. Everything is sort of hitting each other one after the other. Um, and then, you know, we, of course, the pandemic started a couple of years ago. But for this specific event or moment or experience, whatever we're, we're calling it right now, so I break it down to, we look at the timing of it. Um, so Rich, you say you would have liked to have seen it earlier during the pandemic. I, I don't think this would have worked earlier in the pandemic. I think right now, around the world, people have become, you know, fatigued with COVID. They're, they're starting That's to, fair. yeah, increasingly more people are agreeing that, you know what, all the policies and response we had in place, maybe they're not all quite right. So we're increasingly now starting to see more and more countries and even here in, in Canada, which we'll talk about as well, how that's starting. to. So I think the timing is, is very interesting. It's, it's perfect for this. If this happened a year ago, it, it would have been flat. Um, as I think, Steve, that you mentioned, this, this is, we're getting a global response to this. So even the Americans now, you know, they're, they're trying to, to organize their own, you know, march to DC, uh, which, which I'm sure will, will be interesting as well. Uh, just as an aside, you know, Canadians, like we're really proud. We're, we're proud guys. We are, if anything happens, they were with Canada attached on it. 
uh, we wear it with pride. So there was actually, you know, there's a sense of pride for Canadians that, hey, we started this global movement, but yet domestically, there's a pretty big divide on who's actually supporting it and who isn't, which we'll talk about as well. Um, financial markets, we'll go into that. So just, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an investment manager. That's what I do all the time. I always try to be very objective and pragmatic about things. At this point in time, this is having zero impact on financial markets. Um, there might be hope that it will or it won't, whatever. But as of right now, it, it, it's not affecting financial markets. Uh, the only effect it would have is if it would lead to political change. And we'll talk about that as well. Um, the other thing is, I think you touched on a little bit, the media, we'll talk about that and how this is being sold to people, depending on where you're getting your news from. Uh, people will have a very strong view on this one way or the other. But but the main point that I want to touch on here, and um, it, it, people need to understand how politics works. It's not, so the, so Trudeau in this case, or the leader of any other province or state or, or country, whenever a crisis begins, their response is never what the response is. Hey, what's right here? Let's just do what's right. Those days are out the window. That, I don't know if it's ever happened, but it's not happening today. Forget about that. Instead, what would have happened here, Trudeau would have sat down with his, um, his team, whoever's pulling the strings on telling him well, what to do, what not to do. And, and by the way, if people are not aware, this is not just an internal Canadian team. There, there's, there's some pretty big international push or pull or assistance happening here in, in Ottawa, Unacceptable view. <laughs> it's, it's not the Russians either, guys. It's not the Russians either. Uh, however, but what happens though, they'll sit down, they say, hey, look, we, we got thousands of people marching on Ottawa. Uh, this is what they're doing. Uh, our view has to be against them. We have to go with that. But politically, that's what our base wants. Because if, if Trudeau went the other direction and started engaging this group or supporting them, say, you know what, that, that, that's a good point. Why don't we change this? He's going to lose so much support internally, whoever's supporting him financially, uh, as well as politically. I mean, all that goes out the window. So his response, even though it may not seem you know, very Canadian-like. And, you know, I heard some people say, hey, you just go have a cup of coffee with these guys and chat with them. But no way. Like, that's not going to happen. Um, but that, that's the way these things play out. And then we got the media side, but of course, you know, we, we know, depending on which side you're listening to, if you're listening to the CBC, for example, um, you know, this is like the Vikings, like they're storming through the city, they're plundering and, and all pillaging and all that stuff. And if you listen to, say, the, the National Post, you know, no, like they're, they're planting trees and flowers on the way in. And uh, I happen to think, you know, it's, it's not directly in the middle of that. There's a few bad apples, you know, every, every basket out there. But it, it's not this, like, awful society-eating machine that, that's coming through. Anyway, that's just the first sort of initial thoughts here. I know I've probably touched a lot of it. But, Steve, what, what are you hearing on well, your side? No, I mean, I, th I think the biggest thing is, is and, and part of the whole reason why we had this podcast, is just the platform, it's the outlet to have these kind of conversations, because you really can't have these conversations really in open in public anymore, right? So it's like, if you go against, you know, the mainstream narrative, and God forbid, say, oh, I might support or I might be kind of okay with, you know, a trucking convoy to Ottawa the thought police basically come to your house and knock on the door 
and and basically sort of scorn you. And so that's kind of my concern is that you're kind of going down the slippery slope, right? It's like this kind of, it's like the cancel culture thing. It's like, you can't have a thought that, you know, doesn't fit with the narrative that's being pushed down to you from, from up top. And, and so that's really my concern is again, like everybody, like let's, let's make no mistake here. Everyone on the show is fully vaccinated. No one's here as an anti-vaxxer. Nobody's a racist on the show. We're just having a simple conversation. Rich has got a booster. I think he's got five boosters. Um, (laughs) It's just a conversation, a dialogue, which unfortunately I think is missing because everybody is so concerned about getting dogpiled on if they even have a thought that suggests that, hey, you know, maybe these people there aren't such bad people. Maybe they're not all racist. And I think because, you know, we were talking about this before the show here, before we start recording, like people have to look at this from the bigger picture, like in reality, having pushback and and having an opposing view is actually good for a healthy democratic society. Like imagine if all 100% of Canadians, every single one of them, all of them were vaccinated, nobody resisted and everybody just took whatever the government was going to tell you at face value and just obeyed. Like you'd have basically, you would just have an authoritarian We've seen that. We've seen that before. It's the Cultural Revolution in China, <laughs> right? It's I, I mean, like, yeah. I, I so yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I'm looking at. It. Again, I'm not to say whether you support them or you don't support them. Like, you kind of need to have opposing views. And uh, I, you know, I mean, at least the one thing I like about the finance space, which I'm so enamored with, is that you know, people that are managing money or putting out like research to to help people sort of you know manage money. Like, at the end of the day, all they care about is like the truth. What is right? What is wrong? I just need to get to the bottom of this. Um, because at the end of the day, it's like money's on the line. You got skin in the game. You can't, you got to keep your emotions out of it. And so I think like, you know, and that's again, hopefully what we're trying to do at least a little bit in this podcast, just have these dialogues, um, you know, be an outlet for Canadians to at least have, you know, several different views here. And yeah, I mean, that, that's really my, my whole thoughts on this, because I do think this is all bigger picture. What does this mean for, for society, politics? We saw, you know, various members of the Canadian government over the last, you know, more recently and in the past. So, like, you know, there was a bill that they had pushed through, tried to push through about a year ago, which was going to try to regulate uh, online media platforms in Canada, particularly with people on YouTube, such as myself, um, where basically, hey, like, you know, if you've got a decent size audience, like, we're going to make sure that, you know, your views essentially align with what we want them to. And so I think you're just, that just, it's going down that slippery slope, right? And it's the same people are saying, Hey, you know, people that are coming out and supporting, you know, these individuals in Ottawa, they are, if they've got a big audience, they're, they're bad actors. And if they, you know, God forbid you should uh, have a negative response to any politician online on social media, they want the ability to basically freeze your account. And to me, that's just like, from a societal perspective, that's, that is going down a slippery slope. So I just want to add, so I think that's really well said, Steve. And I just want to add a couple of things. I think there's also certain, that's like sort of a more philosophical view. I think that there's sort of like a rubber meets the road view, which is a lot of the things that we've been told are just demonstrably untrue. And I think that, 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 you know, that's maybe bringing it back down to the trucker convoy or maybe bringing it down, you know, we talk about inflation a lot. Um, and we just know, given that there's been some time that's elapsed, and Keith's right in a sense, you know, a lot of this stuff, 
lot of this pushback wouldn't have been acceptable a year ago, a year ago. And now we have a situation where the, the thing of the, you know, my girlfriend is a scientist and the beauty about that is that you're constantly learning and you're constantly adding to the knowledge. And that's sort of the challenge and the humility that you have to have is to, and it's the same way in finance, right? One day you think that tech companies are cyclical. 10 years later, you realize, oops, maybe Google is a utility. And I think that that's, and you have to change your view as the data adjusts and as um, sort of reality makes itself clearer. And whether it's, you know, whether it's the vaccine, we were told the vaccine does not transmit, um, you, you can't catch it. If you, if you can't get, you can't get Corona, if you have the vaccine and you can't transmit it, well, that's not true or the ma cloth masks or whatever. And recently the John Hopkins um, University, very extremely reputable um, university in the United States, you know, they had, they published a paper on lockdowns and, you know, the economic impact of lockdowns, as well as um, the health impacts of lockdowns. And, and the reality is, I think we have to just be open to the view, I think, in a, in a kind of a, a polite, constructive way that views on whether it's economics, or whether it's, you know, um, climate, or whether it's COVID, or a bunch of different things, or whether it's housing policy, which we'll get to, I'm sure, that, you know, that basically authority, authorities and bureaucrats aren't necessarily the panacea. They don't have necessarily have all the answers. Um, Can I just chime in quickly? Because I think there's one thing like I wanted to like discern, because like I've noticed, and there was again, some government officials recently on Twitter commenting that, you know, we need to get tech platforms to start fact, fact checking. And regulating. Yeah, and fact checking and regulating. It's like, well, like, not everything is like 100% factual. Like, for example, I'll give you a very simple example. Like, is Canadian CPI, like, I mean, factually, it's 4.8% officially, factually, but like, is it really? Like, it's, it's, it's almost a little bit subjective. I mean, depends who you ask. I mean, most people probably tell you inflation's higher than 4.8. So, like, if I come out and say, hey, you know, if I tweet on Twitter that, that uh, I think inflation's running at double digits. Do I get shut down? Because factually, that's actually an incorrect statement. CPI for Stats Canada is four point eight. It's a so, really it's a really dangerous game. As Steve, there already are. I know maybe we're digressing away from our nor normal sort of conversation, but I think it's really important to discuss. Like there are are plenty of hate laws on the statutes in Canada. There are loads of hate crime laws in Canada, unlike in the US. It's much, much closer to the UK. In the UK, if you say something um, aggressively in a hateful manner using certain types of language, you can be, you will be, you will be, you'll find yourself in front of a judge. And Canada is much, much closer to that. I'm not a lawyer, you know, you can, we can speak to them, but there are, are already hate laws in Canada. So this idea that the social media needs to be further regulated to me is, is an extremely nefarious kind of veiled threat, which is if you don't behave, we're going to go after the people we don't agree with. And, and, and then functionally, whether or not you agree with that person or not, I think that, you know, that's a scary proposition. And it's, you know, one day you're going to like the government that's in charge and the next week you might not. And I think you should be very, very careful about um, and the other thing that's really important is you don't have to go on social media, you know, Ricky Gervais had this great bit, you know, people, uh, he would say something online and people would write to him, oh, I hate you, stop saying that. He's like, well, just don't follow me, you know, like you, you can turn this off. And I think that's just a vital, vital difference. 
Um, and and I, I think we should be really worried about regulating social media, rather regulating user-generated content, um, and effectively having a bureaucrat in charge of what people should and shouldn't be allowed to say. Keith? Yeah. So what I like about the what's happening with the, with the trucker movement, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, this is not having any effect on things. We, we also have to take a bit of a bigger picture here. Um, so let's look outside of Canada first. So just a couple of weeks ago over in England, you know, they, they've, they've effectively announced, you know what, we're, we're going to uh, reduce all of the um, requirements they've set up for COVID. So whether like wearing a mask in public, you don't have to show an ID anymore if you're vaccinated and, and things like that. And then the Irish did it soon thereafter. And then the Danish, the Danes did it, then the Dutch. So, and the reason those governments over there in the power, they did that was because of public pressure. They realized, okay, wow, we're starting to lose this fight. This is now turning. So again, you know, whether you're your Bojo or whoever over there and, you know, your, your inner circle, they're telling you, hey, we need to pivot here because if we don't, we're going to get booted out. You know, they're going to have you up, up, up on the pit. Um, here in Canada, we're, that hasn't happened yet. But the potential is you're not going to see, for example, the um, Trudeau, for example, he's not going to be yanked out of, out of Ottawa or anything like that, out of Parliament. Instead, what would happen, the moment they realize that, hey, the tide is turning, they will do a pivot. The pivot will happen. But it's already happened this week in Canada. So you've seen the news from Saskatchewan. Do you guys see that? Yep. Can you update us? I mean, people might not be familiar on the show here. Yeah, sure thing. So uh, in Saskatchewan, what the premier announced is on Feb 28th. I, I don't know, you know, I'm not an expert on what he announced, but I can just repeat it back to you. At the end of February, they're basically relaxing all of the restrictions that were imposed on the province because of COVID. And that's the first step that you take. Uh, so read up on that. We're the first province to do this. Now, at the same time, Quebec has also pivoted. Quebec was on, remember, they were going down the road where they were going to actually have a, a tax or a penalty or additional user fee for everyone who wasn't vaccinated. So they pivoted away from that as well. Uh, I'm, hear, I'm hearing Ontario and likely Alberta will go in line with Saskatchewan with, with their reduction of the uh, I'm missing the right word, constraints, restraints, whatever you want to call it on, on COVID policies. Uh, so that, that is happening here in Canada. So the, if this protest is able to maintain itself, uh, it is the dead of winter guys in Ottawa. And I have a, I have a story for you. So uh, one of my good friends, he was uh, in Ottawa a few years back living there. And all of his friends told him Ottawa was a great place to raise a family. And he said, I think that's where I want to stay. I said, I said, why? His name is Jay. Jason. I said, why would you do that? He said, well, it sounds great. I said, well, it's, you know, the whole downtown core, everyone empties out after you know, four o'clock on Friday or whatever. I said, plus the summers are unbelievably hot and the winters are unbelievably cold. You know, you get about six months of the year where it's, you know, pleasant for your family, which of course, if you think about World War II, you know, the Germans followed the Russians into uh, Len Leningrad, Stalingrad, right? Stalingrad at the time. Um, in the dead of winter, you know, and they got cut off supply lines. And it, maybe this isn't a great analogy or anything, but if the truckers are able to maintain the protest and nothing gets crazy for them and they can survive the weather for the next few months, 
this could actually be something that would hang on in Ottawa, not just for a few weeks, but like into the spring. And political winds, they can they can change course pretty dramatically. So as of right now today, it's not set up to have a big change, but don't be shocked if all of a sudden you do see a pivot out there some way. What do you think, Steve? Well, no, I was, are these are these trucker? I, I actually kind of curious. Are these truckers is the plan? Are these guys supposed to stay here for like a couple months? Is that the plan? Well, they're well funded. I think they have was it eight or ten million? I saw that was funded. I mean, I, yeah, I mean that's pretty wild. I mean, again, like I, you know, I think Elon Musk is was tweeting and donating to them. So, um, well, I'm old enough to remember Occupy Wall Street. Um, and living in England, they had, I don't know if you've ever been to London, but in the city of London, there's a building called St. Paul Cathedral, and it's very, very beautiful. I think it's where Princess Diana got married. Anyways, um, and the Occupy Wall Street, I used to work right on, right off of Ludgate Hill. Names in, England, in London, the streets are amazing. And Occupy Wall Street was there for like six months. And so we would go and get our, we'd like leave. I'd be wearing my suit and tie, walk, walk working for an investment firm. It was my story, Keith. And I'd go and I'd walk right through Occupy Wall Street, get my burrito with my suit and tie. I wouldn't tell anybody where I worked or what I did, but they were there for six months. And you know, who knows anything is possible once the weather gets warmer. Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking it's, it's, it's a good point, though. It's a good point, guys. I mean, these things can turn. It won't stay the same. So something will change with the protest. And it could be one direction or the other, but nothing stays static. Everything is always moving. And, um, you know, don't ever underestimate the ability of those in power to do something stupid, unintelligent, <laughs> stupid, correct? <laughs> But, you know, just saw it's just all of a sudden they they snapped. They said enough of this. And again, they're again, they're holding supports them for doing it. But just imagine they do a sweep. So they sweep in, you know, with um, with the police or, you know, military or whatever, you know, to, to get all this stuff cleaned up. Uh, that would be a horrendous mistake, by the way, if they did that, because it will just, you know, create even more support and sympathy and empathy. For the group but anyway the bottom line is this this is gonna change well and, uh, and it's, it's moving yeah i mean all i was gonna say is i still think there's like a, a silent majority or minority or whatever you want to call it that of people that like i think internally kind of like support them but like don't want to say it because they don't want to get like just lambasted on social media and in the public eye so it's kind of do you know what i mean anyways again guys write write whatever you are right meaning right or left whatever i don't care what your politics are uh we simply just wanted to have sort of the dialogue and conversation here um, i had one tiny little story to this sorry two stories in one go but forgive me i was at a dinner party and every single person to a man is left wing Okay, man, woman, I was at a dinner party. I'm by far and away the most, let's say, fiscally conservative, socially, you can do whatever you want. I don't care about that. But fiscally, massively. And to a man, I like brought it up in conversation because I love throwing grenades into lovely hand parties, uh, lovely, uh, you know, dinner parties. And I was shocked by how constructive all the comments were. So I think you're onto something with that silent uh, majority thing, Steve. Uh, yeah yeah no i mean yeah what else is going on there's a lot of lots going on i mean we had uh conservative leader aaron o'toole out um because again i think like you see if you look at the politics online right again it's like very like the conservatives clearly are going towards i think pushing further right 
and you've got the liberals, I think, pushing further left. And like, that's what I'm talking about. It's like, there's no, there's almost like no middle ground at this point. Uh, so those kinda... words, boy, a second, those words have like sort of lost their meaning. I don't think right wing is, you know, I, I think that we, we've sort of lost those left and right meaning of words. I think that what the current liberal party's done is very authoritarian. You know, you could, you could make a case for, for that actually being extremely right wing. What they've what they've what they've decided and and told people to do with no pushback and and um and and a left and a and a liberal like John Maynard Keynes I think would be horrified by a lot of these government policies. So I, anyway, sorry, maybe that's a yeah. No, I, I hear you. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna we're gonna kill the political talk now because okay, I think cool. you guys you guys have all heard us now for going on 30 minutes about politics and everybody hates politics. So uh, that, why that was we, our. Why don't we next talk about religion? <laughs> and our yeah. insurance policies oh, i love it um keith's always good for at least one joke per show so there it is um yeah i mean what else we've got you know an update on the housing market here uh so some recent data for the vancouver housing market we've kind of touched on this briefly on the show before inventory as of the end of January um, currently sitting at all-time record lows lowest in over 20 plus years uh, we've got some preliminary data in the Calgary housing market, which I'm s- involved in a little bit. Uh, inventory off 35%. Months of inventory in the in the Calgary housing market down to 1.3. Uh, if anyone wants an idea of what that means, having 1.3 months of inventory is indicative of significantly higher prices. So a balanced market would be between four to five months of supply. So you're down to 1.3 in, in, a, in a Calgary market where prices were flat for 12 years. So the, the housing sort of bubble or whatever you want to call it uh, is, is leaking into, uh, into Alberta as well. Uh, we recently had some comments from uh, Peter Rutledge, uh, God bless. Uh, he used to be the head of the credit union, used to follow me on Twitter, was promoted to OSPI as the head regulator and then unfollowed me. Um, so screw you, Peter. But uh, he did say that uh, he was on a podcast recently, maybe we can get him on the Looney Hour, saying that uh, he thinks it's quite probable that you'll see a 10 to 20% correction in some of these uh, markets where that have seen massive price growth. Uh, so kind of curious to hear your thoughts, uh, Keith, in terms of, you know, potential knock-on effects on the market. Like, I'm always like, I don't know, like, I don't know. I think there's a naivete around Canadians that, you know, the housing market can just withstand a 10 to 20% correction in certain pockets and we can just continue on our merry way. It won't, it won't impact, you know people's day-to-day lives you know it just yeah it only brings us back to no november pricing what's the big deal but i just think the, this thing has knock-on effects so if peter rutledge at osfi is correct in that oh rates are going to go up a bit and and housing froth is going to come off and prices are going to correct 10 to 20 percent. i don't know what you think but i have to think there's further knock-on effects here i think what we need to do here is consider who he is and who is he speaking for right now um, so the, the goal of, and the objective of any regulator is to ensure there's always stability out there. Like they want you to watch paint dry on the wall and fall asleep. Uh, so if he comes out and he says, hey, we can get a 20, 30% correction housing and it's not going, don't worry about it. He's, a, he's, he's addressing two concerns here. One is that the housing market could correct. He's saying, yeah, it could happen. 
but he's saying, hey, don't worry if it happens. Uh, so from a financial market perspective, if the housing market corrected 10, 20, 30%, and it took place over a long period of time, then he's right. It, it won't have an effect. So as you know, like you can have a stock market, like one of the worst years in the stock market was 2002. So uh, global stocks were down about 20, 22% that year. And it was half a percent one month, 2% another month. Like it was torturous because it took just so long to happen. But there was none of these like sudden moments that jolted everything. So to believe that the Canadian housing market, however, can, you know, experience a 20 to 30% drawdown, uh, it, that won't happen over a slower period of time. Some, something dramatic would happen in the system. And, and it, we, I keep telling the same story. It'll be from a, a rate perspective for that to take place. So um, I think that was the question. Did I miss another part of it? No, I mean, Rich, I don't know if you have any comments as well. Yeah, I just, I, I think um, my, my question, my, my answer is sort of a question. I mean, in when you think about trading stocks, there's lots of different bid and asks at every specific, you know, above and below the prevailing price. So if you're trading a stock, call it ABC, and it sells for, you know, the, the list price is 100. Well, there's actually, you know, there's blocks that, that want to buy at 102, and there's blocks that want to sell at 98. And you know you got the bid ask spread, and because it's so liquid, you know that that price of a hundred is is in inverted commas a true reflection of what the market feels that that stock is worth at a given time on a given day. And I just, Steve, my 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 answer is a, in the form of a question, which is, I mean, is there anywhere near that much liquidity in the housing market? I think that's easy answer is probably no. And then can you have so when let's say the supply kicks on or people, you know, have trouble with interest rates or whatever, I mean, if you don't have that bid and you don't have a support at the floor to that pricing, isn't it like totally possible that you do like the bottom just falls out of the market? I mean, it happened like, for example, Las Vegas during the 2008 um, crisis is an extreme example, but if literally no one wants to buy your house doesn't the price just fall and fall and fall until somebody's finally, you finally hit somebody on the way down? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I still think that uh, there's a lot of like knock on effects just because this thing's gotten so large that like, if you really like look at the, the system and how it's kind of playing out. So like first and foremost, yeah. Like housing markets, when they correct, they tend to be very long and drawn out. Right. Because like, it's unlike a stock, it's like, there's not much liquidity sellers are always extremely reluctant because like there's some emotions behind it. Like, this is my house. I've lived here for 15 years in my neighbor. If my neighbor sold for 1.5, you know, I'm at least 1.5 minimum, but the market starts to change. So they'll sit on their 1.5 million asking price for six months before they cut their price. And so what you tend to see is that sales will just dry up and that has, you know, knock-on effects, which is okay. I mean, obviously realtors are making less money. Mortgage brokers are doing less volume, which typically means there's less new credit being injected into the, into the, into the economy. Um, you know, people's ability to refinance, which obviously we know refinances are driving a huge portion of new, new housing demand today because, you know, mom and dad are, have made a million dollars in their house. They're refinancing, giving little Johnny $200,000 to go buy a property. So I just think there's a lot of like knock on impacts. And because you've got so much debt and leverage in the system, I, I think it, 
I think there's a lot of, I think there's quite a few people, particularly maybe in Vancouver and Toronto that are relying on prices to go up. And I know, I know certainly for developers, like you look at some of these pro formas, like the numbers don't work. The numbers only work if the market continues to go up. And so I think a lot of those projects just get stalls. You see housing starts start to fall off as well. And, and so I just think, you know, I think there's, because housing is so massive now in Canada, like, I don't know. I don't know if we can peacefully have, you know, a 10 to 20% correction in part of these markets and just kind of move on. So but. just to, so what, what you both described is an air pocket, right? So if, and, and again, it's very real. And in the way that market psychology works with everything, whether we like it or, or not, people will always value their own investment, whether it's their investment portfolio or their house at their high watermark. So right now, if you know you value your house at, say, it's a million dollars, for example, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's just time for you to move. You know, you retire, you want to downsize, whatever, and all of a sudden, your head it's a million bucks, and you figure out, my God, I'm only going to get nine hundred for this, and you're going to say, and that changes my plans completely, and then you don't do the trade, and what maybe like one thing that I know, Rich, you you showed us. You showed this indirectly without using these words for we've shown the the percentage of the Canadian economy that's now linked to housing. I think that's what we looked at a while ago. Mm -hmm. And it might be at close to its all-time high, I think. It, it moves in waves and everything. But what we're also talking about here is the multiplier effect. And again, it's extremely hard to quantify it, but it's not a one-for-one -one relationship. So if housing comes down 20, 30%, you know, you get that air pocket. It, it doesn't mean that there's, you know, $5 billion less in the economy next year. You know, it's 5 billion times this multiplier. So it, it can get, you know, pretty funny in a hurry. Um, we'll move yeah, along here. I'm now taking yeah. Steve's control here. No, but, yeah, uh, I was just going to say, because you were just, you know, I think the, the natural sort of pivot here is that in order for this to happen, we're, we're looking at rates again. And, and Keith, I think you wanted to update us on the, on the rate side of things. Cause we've had some action today, actually from the bank of England and the ECB. So why don't you take it away? Yeah. So I mean, so we talked about the bank of Canada last week and I think the title of the episode was the world was shocked. The bank of Canada sh shocks the world, but not the loony hour, which I love that title, by the way, oh, by the way, you know, for our listener here, uh, Rich came up with the the name, the Looney Hour. I remember he had a, some of a few different options to choose from, and Steve and I both jumped at the Looney Hour. That was they great... kiboshed the Beaver Lounge, which was my favorite. <laughs> it was an originally, yeah. And then the other suggestion was the Rich Diaz show, featuring friends. <laughs> that, that only had one vote, apparently, the Rich Diaz <laughs> show. Uh, but uh, yeah, so back to it. Uh, so this morning, the, the Brits and the Europeans and their central banks came out. So it, it, extremely interesting. The uh, the Bank of England, they hiked rates by 0.25%. So they went from 025 up to a half a percent. That's where they are. Scary stuff. What was really interesting, though, the majority of the committee, remember, everyone, what, what is it? Not, not all. What was the anim, animal farm quote? You know, some animals are more important this, than others or something what, what is that some are more equal than others we're all animals are yeah, the, yeah, equal yeah. but some are more equals than others yeah okay so for the monetary policy committee with, with the bank of england the, the numbers was more people wanted to increase rates by by a half a percent which is extremely interesting we'll carry that over in a second however in, in the end it was on a quarter of a point 
Um, so the Brits now, they've clearly said, hey, we're now hiking. We've done that. Already told you we're going to do it. And we did it. Of course, Bank of Canada, for some reason, did carry through. Um, the Americans are clearly coming up. And by the way, now there's even more chatter for the U.S. Federal Reserve to hike by 50 basis points. So the Americans' next meeting is March 16th, and the Canadians are on March the 2nd. So they're, you know, they're almost aligned here. Um, but then we had the European Central Bank. And um, your favorite. <laughs> I love the European Central <laughs> Bank. It's like you could, you know, you, know, you uh, do you guys remember that you guys don't remember the TV show WKRP in Cincinnati? Remember that from, that from the 60s? So <laughs> if any listeners don't know what that is, and then you do know you're, you know, you're on the boomer side, but if you don't know what it is, ask your parents what it was. And it was one of the best shows of all time. It's about this dysfunctional radio station in Cincinnati. And, you know, with Cincinnati going to the Super Bowl, I'm sure they'll get a bit of love now in the in, 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 uh, week after this weekend. Uh, however, the ECB, in my mind, they operate like WKRP in Cincinnati. Like, it, it's a gong show inside. However, it's not really run by monetary professionals. So the, the head of the ECB, of the European Central Bank, is Christine Lagarde. And she is one of the most professional politicians to ever walk the earth. Like there are some good ones out there. I don't mean good in that they're doing good. I mean, she is a pro. She is exceptionally talented at this. Uh, she's made her way through French politics uh, over to the IMF. And, and if you remember, do you guys remember how she became leader of the, the head of the IMF? Rich has his finger up for a point. I just want to remind everybody she's also convicted of fraud in, in France. <laughs> That's another good point. And these things don't matter, right? That's in a prior political life. Um, anyway, if, if you want a good, a good story, try to you know, research how did she become leader of the IMF. Uh, and that was a, a political assassination on her predecessor. However... So here she is. She again, she's not a professional central banker. She did not go through the Goldman Sachs school and stuff like that. But she's now the head of the ECB. And, you know, I listened to the uh, the presser this morning because, you know, you never know what's going to happen with, when the ECB do it. Uh, and boy, she can if you really listen to what she is saying, she is telling everyone what they want to hear. If you are afraid of inflation, and you want to hear that, yeah, they're going to raise rates, she's saying it. If you want to hear that, wow, no, inflation is transitory, we need to keep rates low, because if rates rise, they're really going to screw over funding issues, that's in there as well. There's a little bit of something for everyone, so it's always interesting to listen to. But one thing that the ECB did not do today, they clearly signaled, you know what, we're not ready to raise rates yet, we'll be mildly hawkish, we're going to put an end, and they have a boy, an alphabet soup of so many stimulus programs out there. It's, it's really hard to keep track of it all. Uh, but that's what they did this morning. And um, we'll see that there. But that was the ECB. Keith, have you changed your mind? Have you changed your mind on them basically never raising interest rates ever again? No, they, they, we, will, we will not. The only, I, I anticipate the Europeans will only raise rates to protect the currency at some point. Yeah, okay. We they, agree they're going that. Right now, they've already said, hey, we're last here except for the Japanese, they won't be raising either. So now we have the Brits, we have the Canadians, the Americans are just going to start raising rates. And uh, so that, that was a pretty big moment here uh, this morning. Oh, by the way, so, so I just want to remember a story. So uh, years Three. ago, before the <laughs> pandemic. And Three, before, that's the triple, triple for yeah. you guys. This is a special episode. 
So you can find this one on YouTube. It's just a classic <laughs> moment of central bank history. So uh, this is when they started to broadcast the, the central bank presser, you know, the, the Q&A afterwards, it was over. And it was a room full of people and everything. And, and Mario Draghi, he was the, uh, the head of the, the ECB then. And, you know, they're at this table and they're answering questions. And out of nowhere, these three ladies come running it down through the, uh, the, the center aisle. And they jump up on the desk and expose themselves to support some cause they were doing. And there's a famous picture of Draghi with both hands in the air like this, you know, pr protect me and, and, and save me. But those were the wild, wild west days of central bank pressers. And now they can't happen anymore because everything is done on you know, Zoom video and, and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, the, the Europeans always provide the best potential. That was, that was Mario Draghi's first boob. I mean, Steve isn't you, very good with there's stories others, there's yet, other, there's, Sorry, it's okay. He practiced. He's, he's still got to work on his dad jokes. That's all right. Um, is, is there, you guys, Keith, are you in the view, uh, you know, with the ECB, basically, you know, ECB, BOJ, like basically are never moving rates. Um, is your, is your view that, you know, the U S is kind of next and probably Canada at some point, like are we all just basically debt zombies trying to keep a system alive? Yeah. But I mean, again, one thing, central banks, they like to be as transparent as, as possible. So the, the Americans are 100% raising rates and, and so are, so will the bank of Canada. I mean, like, mm -hmm. again, like we felt kind of bad for them last week, you know, they, they, and then they kept saying, hey, next next meeting, we're going to do it. Uh, whereas like the Europeans and the Japanese, I'd be shocked. Like it's so like we, we are headed for some kind of policy change correction for global debt markets. It, it's coming because no one can tolerate higher rates. We would just talk about the Canadian housing market, for example. And we were all we're all sort of tied up with it. So uh, there's another oh. there's another sort of angle I want to just quickly say, I think what's also interesting is sort of the schism you're seeing geographically. And so I don't know if this is by accident, or maybe I'm reading into too much, but all like basically all the Latin American central banks have raised interest rates. So what do I mean by Latin America? Um, Mexico, I think has raised rates. I know Colombia just raised by a percent. Brazil's raised by a whole whack. I think 600, 700 basis points. You got this, some of the other smaller countries in Latin America as well. Let's ignore Argentina. They're just a basket case. But, um, but so you've got all Latin America raising rates. And, and, and then you've got sort of the middle part of the world. That's, you know, Europe. Forgive me for ignoring Africa here for a minute. Um, they're not doing anything, as we know. And then on, on sort of the eastern part of the world, you got China's actually cutting rates and, and basically all of the major economies in Asia haven't been raising rates at all with any kind of pace, with the exception of South Korea. Um, and so it's actually kind of, I don't know, we're going to, I'm going to keep an eye on this and I'll share the charts if we, if you guys are interested, but the, um, but it's interesting because there's like sort of a geographical schism. I mean, all the countries sort of in the, I don't want to say economic, you know, um, gravitational pull of, of the, of America, but certainly geographic area are all raising and, and you've got in Asia, they're actually the biggest economies easing. And I just wonder how that's going to play out. Um, it'll be interesting to see. So one, so one thing, um, so I, I'm almost finished writing a new ice cap global outlook. So it, it's coming out very soonish. Uh, so the title is called, how do you know when a central banker is lying? <laughs> it's a good title. Beat my title. Unacceptable you know, view. 
Do you know the answer? Uh, they're never not lying. I don't know. <laughs> we know. Well, you have to read it to find out. There we go. But that, that uh, should be out. Uh, but we're, it's kind of ironic because we're talking about a lot of these things. And one of the most interesting market movements that, that we've identified now, and, and Rich, you just brought it up um, without me cueing you to, to bring it up. So with the Americans tightening or raising interest rates, and because the Hong Kong dollar and the Chinese one, it, it is pegged to the U.S. monetary policy. All of a sudden, the Chinese economy now, they have an external entity that's tightening their monetary policy. So you're, you're, at, you're at the whim of the Americans with that. At the same time, the Chinese had to cut rates. So they cut rates about 50 basis points, or half a percent, to try to counteract this. And they're having challenges you know, with their housing, the real estate market over and stuff like that. Plus. The, the president of China, he came out and said, hey, guys, stop raising rates. You're going to screw over the emerging market world. And as you mentioned, the emerging market world, they're tripping up all of themselves to raise rates to try to keep pace with the Americans. And, and this is the point that we make all the time here. With the Americans tightening, and then you have, you know, the Canadians and Brits are doing as well. Like that, that's a lot of the, the, the key currents in the world. It, it's going to create a very awkward moment coming up for the emerging market space, but especially the Chinese right now. So think about it. They have higher rates going on them. So when rates go up, it means they're gonna to have to buy more US dollars or sell their local currency to maintain their peg and stuff like that. At the same time, they're trying to cut rates to keep things together domestically. You know, it, it's it's like adding like, like sweet sauce and spice sauce to your uh, soup to try to get that balance and you keep screwing it up. Maybe something like that, but we ha we have that coming out though in in our next piece. And uh, again, like how, you know, how do you know a central banker is lying? You, I think some people know the answer. Their Rich. lips are moving. Come on! Oh, oh no, I didn't get that one. <laughs> oh, that was almost guys. as bad as my joke earlier. <laughs> okay, I got nothing else. That's it for me. But so, I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in summary, we're in a bit of a, a shit sandwich, so to speak, uh, where every sort of, you know, country and central bank is trying to figure out what to do here. After... It's not all bad. It's not all bad. I mean, some of the data of the U.S. was actually pretty good. I mean, uh, just to, just because I want to end on a positive note, it's almost, you know, Thursday's new Friday and everything. But I think uh, one of the key things was the ISM, which is the um, Institute of Supply Management. They pump out their PMI, their purchasing manager survey um, once a month, the first Tuesday of every month. I can't remember. It's always the first week of every month. And I mean, yes, it fell, um, which is the headline number. But if you dig, dig deeper, you can see a lot of the supply. Um, number one, the supply backlogs and the supply constraints are slowly but surely easing, which I think is really important. And the other thing that's really important is the demand is absolutely gangbusters. So this idea that they, the demand there was, you know, six months ago or a year ago, I remember people saying, well, as soon as all the, the stimulus ends and, and all the, the transfers to household and that, you know, you, you know, you'll immediately start stop seeing um, all this demand come um, come through. And I don't think that that's been true. I think that actually the, op the opposites um, actually sort of happened. The demand sort of uh, feeding on itself. Um, that's just from one perspective at the ISM, but it's a very, very, like a third, I think it's a very, very good source. Um, but what's happening on, on the other side though, Rich, is that the equivalent Chinese data, like their equivalent PMI yeah. data, it, it's gone the opposite direction. So here yeah, we go. We, we have the American fight again. Need... We're going to fight again. <laughs> don't, fight, that's not Americans... what I see. Yeah, but the Americans, well, the data came out, uh, but the Americans are going to tighten 
which again, this is more evidence, more data to support them tightening. And here are the Chinese, you know, they're trying to loosen policy domestically, but they're being influenced by the Americans. So, so again, like we continue to go down this road where the, the probability of an accident happening in the emerging market world, it, it's shooting up, it's, it's going up. It doesn't mean it's 100%, but instead of being 10% a year ago, it's now up to like 50%, 65%. And, you know, we continue to head there. Let me let me or mediate rich, here. Rich, what let you me, can do, Rich, you can sell all your U.S. energy stocks and buy. Chinese no way! Energies. Are you kidding? No way! But you just but you love I've China. Been You're... I've been spectacularly right about this. If you subscribe to my note, you would know about that. And I'm all the way to the bank. But I think that but, but I did. You know, now we're plugging notes here. I did write a note last week called America versus the world, where I think you want to rotate out of the U.S. because I think, you know, China trades at a 10 times price earnings ratio. That doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, they're, they're money, money, they're, they're going to goose this, this uh, market like crazy. I think that the world is unlocking. I think the re inventory restocking stuff that we talk about all the time, I think that's just kicking off. And if people were really, really worried about growth, I don't think, Brent crude oil would be hitting $90 and get about to smash through 100 any minute, regardless of what you think about inventories. So I, I don't know, I, I just I push back on this, uh, you know, raising interest rates just completely derails global growth and the world is screwed up. I, I don't think that's fair at all. So we've I'm got another wagon wheel bet. <laughs> We've got the. I, uh, I'm going to take the S&P for one year out as of today. We'll mark it today. I'm taking the S&P, and you are long the Chinese. No, get out of here. <laughs> well, that's no what you way. just said. No, no, I'll take global XUS. Come on, the Japanese yen yeah. is trading. No, the Japanese yen is trading at a 20-year low in real effective exchange terms. I accept it. I, I accept it. You don't have to support it. I okay. It. Well, I, mean, I take. I take Vancouver condos. <laughs> the ultimate hedge. The Kitsilano Kits condo. All right, Kits one Lano. wagon wheel. One wagon wheel. The Flying Wedge Pizza Company in Kitsilano. One wagon wheel, February 3rd. You've got Global XUS. I'm oh, sorry, I've got Global XUS and you've got USD. Done. 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 Well, you guys all heard it here. Okay, so we've got we've got the... Tom Brady of Macro, Rich Diaz, Uber Bull, and we've got the grand, we've got the granddaddy of finance, uh, Uber Bear, Keith, uh, Uber Bear, and I'm in the middle, not knowing what the hell is going to happen because I read a lot of research notes and I keep, I, I, I to me, I feel like everybody's super divided because I'm, I keep reading a whole bunch of pieces that are calling for, you know, recession calls, and I got other guys talking about, you know the great reopening trade and this is going to kick off the next big boom. I'm super conflicted. Um, so I don't, I'm, I'm we can still I'm gonna... be friends, even though we disagree. Isn't that nice? <laughs> we should go to Ottawa guys. Who's going to pick me up. <laughs> we'll put a little daffodil <laughs> in your, uh, what is it? Like a dandelion. You can, we can sing Kumbaya. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good way to end it there. Hopefully people made it to the end of the episode um, and got past our 35 minute rant there about uh, the Canadian trucker convoy and all the politics involved. But uh, like I said, we're hoping that this podcast and platform can continue to be an outlet for um, creative thoughts. Let's put it that way. Unacceptable views and creative thoughts. Think outside the box. And uh, as always, we appreciate the support. We'll see you next week.